these stories had been kept and had never come out, especially to come out to young African-American girls to show them that don't be afraid of math, don't be afraid of science. There's a whole lot of beauty in it. And I think that's where we always miss the mark. We teach it and we teach it the way that it's been taught and the passion's not there. So the students go, oh, I can't stand math. Oh my God, I hate science. But when it's taught right, you get this love for it. Before any world-changing innovation, there was a moment, an event, a realization that sparked the idea. Before It Happened is a show about that idea. Each week, we take a deep dive into a singular light bulb moment that inspired the visionaries to push forward and change our lives. I'm your host, Donna Laughlin. Nearly 20 years ago, I launched a public relations firm with the sole purpose of helping visionaries tell their stories to the world. Now, two decades later, I want to share those stories and more with you. This podcast takes you on a journey before it happened with the innovators who imagine and are still imagining the future. Ever since I was a child, I was curious about so many things. I spent hours in the garage at science fairs, sifting through popular science, popular mechanics, and pretty much any journal I could get my hands on, exploring and discovering how things work. From transportation and AI to just about anything you can put in your home, office, or pocket. On this show, you'll hear from the innovators themselves as they tell their stories of how they brought those visions to life. Grab your passport and let's go on a journey together. In 1958, when Mary Jackson became NASA's first black female engineer, her distinction was largely unknown outside of the agency's Langley Research Center. Along with her team of hidden figures, Jackson spent her long career as an integral part of America's space program and was pivotal in getting the first American astronauts into space. If you were a curious science-minded black girl growing up on the south side of Chicago, Jackson and her colleagues should have been heroes, idols to look up to. But it was a different time. That girl in Chicago had no idea Jackson even existed. My guest on today's show is Pamela Greer, better known as the NASA lady. Pamela was that little girl in Chicago. And today, her mission is to give to young Black girls what she lacked growing up, real and practical exposure to STEM education. And she does it through teaching them mostly about space. Now, Pamela is not an astronaut. She's not an engineer. She's not an inventor or an entrepreneur. In many ways, she's very different from most of the guests we have on Before It Happened. But they share one important thing in common. They're visionaries. Pam's vision isn't necessarily a new product or a new technological innovation. No, her vision is one that sees young black and brown people, especially girls, having access to the kind of science and math programs that can make them the next Mary Jackson. 
But her road to becoming the NASA lady was filled with twists and turns and closed doors and new opportunities. Before she got involved with NASA, she was a teacher. She still is, in fact. But she wasn't even a science teacher. Pamela parlayed a 17-year career writing advertising copy into a job as a high school English teacher. So when we spoke recently, before we dug into her entire story, I had a very serious question I needed to get out of the way. Pam, the NASA lady is such a cool title. How does an English teacher from Chicago get a name like that in the first place? So I am a volunteer, so I do not work for NASA or get paid by NASA. I basically am part of a network of hundreds, if not thousands, of volunteers across the world that do outreach with NASA missions, NASA educational products. We talk about and have events that, you know, focus on specific NASA themes. I just took on the the handle, which has now become a brand of the NASA lady. So when I had the AEL, the Aeronautics Education Laboratory, I didn't have any students. So I had the lab and it was a brand new school we moved the lab into. And one of the students didn't know my name but he knew I ran the NASA lab. So I'd walk down the halls and all of a sudden he'd shout, hey, NASA lady. I'm like, what's my name? (laughs) He would go, the NASA lady. And every time then I started letting him call me the NASA lady and I thought it was kind of, you know, cool and catchy. So when they closed the program, when the grant money ran out, I just thought that, You know, I had already applied and been accepted as a solar system ambassador and, you know, got an opportunity through NASA to go to the SDS-133 launch, which was two launches from the very last shuttle launch and met Leland Melvin and a whole lot of really phenomenal NASA astronauts and NASA employees and got to watch the shuttle blast from where the countdown clock was. So the NASA lady at that time, I think that was really when I wound up taking it on as as, as a handle. And if anyone can do what I do, they just, you know, have to want to inspire kids and, you know, want to be able to reach out and whatever area of, you know, expertise and knowledge, it doesn't have to be space. It could be, you know, technology. It could be doing this, podcasting. So whatever you can do to inspire young people, that's really all you need. And then you guys, too, will be inspiring the next generation of STEM and STEAM young people. So tell me a little bit about Chicago. Are your parents from Chicago as well? My grandmother was actually born in Atlanta. so. I have my roots down south. So she was born in Atlanta and my dad was born here. My mom was born here. He had a brother. My mom had five brothers and sisters. And I grew up on the south side of Chicago. I still talk about and still have connections with a lot of friends that I grew up with from elementary school. Remembering that day following the assassination of Martin Luther King when they brought the National Guard 
into Chicago following the riots that broke out. And we were little girls. And we walked up to the corner. I grew up on 63rd Street. So we walked to 63rd and Rhodes. And it was so quiet because there was no traffic. Everyone had been, you know, put off the streets, couldn't come out to, you know, be driving cars. And we sat there and we watched the National Guard and the tanks and the jeeps rolling down 63rd Street. And as young girls, we, you know, knew something was happening and we knew Dr. King had been assassinated, but the extent of them bringing in the National Guard really didn't sink in until years later when I was teaching. And we were talking about his assassination and the civil rights movement. And, you know, some of those things being here have have been things that have really helped shape who I have become. Wow, what a moment in time to witness and not just read it in a history book. So tell me a little bit more about Chicago and your parents. What did your parents do? My dad worked in insurance, so he was an insurance salesman. And my mom worked for Delta Airlines. So she got a job. You know, a lot of times we look at things and, you know, affirmative action. Affirmative action helped me and it helped my mom. So she was a secretary and I think she went looking for another job and they told her, oh, well, Delta Airlines is looking for African-American women to come and work in their reservation center that was here in Chicago. And she went and got the job. So from the time I was about eight years old, she was working for the airline. So because of that, we got to travel and go all kinds of places and, and see all kinds of things. I attribute a lot of who I wound up becoming to my mom because she made sure that I got broad experiences and let me be creative, you know, let me explore the science and my artsy side. And I'd have art projects all over the kitchen table. And she never complained. <laughs> Like, why is there glitter everywhere? Like, I was making something with these little squiggly bugs. <laughs> and at the time, I really didn't know what my mother was doing as she was raising me and letting me have these experiences. And then this is something that, you know, Michelle Obama said this, and I think people got really like, oh, why does she say this? She says, well, I didn't really grow up feeling that Black experience so much as a lot of us did growing up because of the things that you're exposed to. So I knew I was, you know, a little African-American girl. I grew up in the heart of some of the hardest gang territory on 63rd Street, but that's never the side of the world I saw because I saw family and we didn't talk about a lot of the things that were going on around us. Wow. How did that influence you as a student? Did you have a favorite class or teacher? So I have always liked to write. That has been something I did from maybe the time I was maybe four or five or six. I would write these short stories and read them to my mom. And when I got to high school, I went to South Shore High School and they had a radio television program. So I just thought this was 
just a phenomenal opportunity to do something different than, you know, the journalism and the English and the science and all that. So I got in the TV production class and Mr. Mancino was the teacher. And I cannot describe how uplifting he was and what a role model he became to us. So he taught us how to write scripts and how to do our our, our narrative because we had we did the news every day for the entire school, and then we had the TV cameras, so we would create our projects and our little narratives. And at the end of the class, he gave everybody. I have a little bird in it, and that's a little sparrow. And he wrote a cute little card with it. And everybody got something different, but it was a statement of their character as he saw us and who we were. And, you know, he equated me to being a sparrow that, you know, I'm quiet because at the time I was quieter. But even though sparrows have a, you know, sweet song, they still have this, this inner strength. No, that was like a long time ago, but I still have that bird in that nest. And, you know, it's been through moves and, you know, thrown it in boxes, but it always reminds me to remember my inner strength and to stay grounded in in who I am. So I thank Mr. Mancino for that. He had a ponytail, you know, he was kind of like, I guess, a hippie. He was just cool. (laughs) Let's talk about STEM, because I think it's really important. What I've noticed in the last 10 years is that everything that was taken out is put back in. So we started taking things out, started shortening classroom time. And and I was always told girls didn't take math and girls didn't take science. And you go over here and you take that. What was your experience like growing up in terms of access to math and science and your thirst for that? I say one day I'm going to write a book about all of this. And when I do workshops, especially when I'm talking to my girls, because I have a big emphasis on girls and getting girls excited about STEM, that for some strange reason, my dad must have thought I was, you know, wanted another son because I have a brother, but he would always buy me stuff that my mother would frown and go, that's not for girls, that's for boys. So I have this phenomenal uh, American flyer train that he bought me in like, I guess, the late 50s. And I set that train up and and it has this big old transformer and you have to do all kinds of things to have, you know, you put the thing on it to put the electricity. And he would buy me telescopes and microscopes and science kits. And my mother would go, why are you buying her that? That's for boys. And that's when I got, you know, this lifelong desire from the time I was young that I was going to grow up and be a doctor. So when I got to high school, you know, I took, I was like fascinated with biology, did really great in math, didn't really make the connection because then they weren't talking, you know, the integration of concepts and you go, oh my God, I'm going to chemistry. I got to do math, but I got this, but we had a, not quite the greatest chemistry teacher. And I remember that we learned it out of a book because he didn't really want to spend the time to give us that classroom experience. And we were fine with that because what do 16-year-old girls want to do? 
they want to come from lunch and they want to gossip and they want to giggle and they want to talk about boys. And the last thing they want to do is, you know, look at the periodic table of elements and mix together with some chemicals. No. So we were like, cool. He's not making us do any of that. He just read the chapter. And it wasn't until I got to college. And of course, I'm going to be a doctor. So I boldly go into U of I. I'm a pre-med major. So give me those pre-med classes my first semester. And they gave me chemistry. Not thinking that, you know what, you really didn't have the best chemistry experience in high school, but I got this. And that was what I realized I didn't have it. And it was like, I was trying to figure out what was not right because I loved this stuff. I was smart. I had great grades in math. Why was this such a struggle? And at the time I got it, but I didn't really get it until later when I became a teacher, the inequities that exist in our school systems and how some schools you got a lab notebook and you're doing experiments and you're writing down hypotheses and you're doing all of this. And then you're taking these, oh my God, awful quizzes and tests and you're with the head. We didn't have that. But as a result of not having that, when I got to college and I needed to be able to bring that with me, it was missing. And I felt like, I don't know if this is going to work. And I always try and I keep that with me and remind myself because I've been to, you know, with the role that I do and I have done over the years, I go into classrooms where science classes are in a normal classroom with no lab equipment, no lab tables, nothing but a textbook. And then that reminded me of my experience. And I'm like, these kids are getting so cheated and you get really angry, but you can't go to the administration and ask how come, you know, because they're closing this school and this is like a temporary thing because pretty soon everybody will be gone. Let's go back to the University of Illinois. So you went in as a science major? Pre-med major. Chemistry pre-med? Mm-hmm. Yep. I was going to pursue my lifelong dream of, you know, being an OBGYN going to college and I'm going to do all this stuff. I even took Latin, which is crazy, for two years in high school because doctors have to write Latin. So I was in the Latin class and I had my whole life planned out in front of me. And that chemistry class was speed bump. And I'm like, okay, well, you love TV (laughs) and you like writing. And, you know, they had a communication department. So After my first year of college, I changed majors and still took a lot of science classes, but became a communications major instead of a science major. And what was your first job? NBC. So my first job was what I'm like, my dream job. I'm going to go work for NBC and I'm going to become a big time TV writer and producer. How did that go? Didn't work. It didn't go. It didn't go at all. Over time. That's not what I was destined to do. And I still I still do a lot of video and, and I do, um, you know, have my blog with the NASA lady 
And I do a radio show on WIT, Talking STEM, every Monday. So that was in my blood. But obviously, that was not what the universe had planned for me. So I started doing more. I'm going to start my own business. So I started freelance writing. And I did that and had some really phenomenal experiences for about a good 17 years. And then something said, you need to give back. This was the early, early days of the internet. And little did Pamela know how her exposure to the brand new World Wide Web would impact the next phase of her career. While Pamela was still writing advertising copy, she started dabbling online. She figured out how to transmit her work to her clients electronically and eventually added web design to the services she offered. Soon, everyone Pamela knew, personally and professionally, was going to her with their computer questions. But something was still missing. Despite her success as a writer, Pamela said she wanted to give back and paused her freelancing career to pursue teaching. She originally planned to be in the classroom for just five years, and then returned to writing. But it didn't work out that way. So Pam, tell me, what were you teaching when you first started in the classroom? I was an English teacher who also taught a lot of science stuff, and I'd bring all of that into my classes. And I'm still amazed with looking at stars and all of that. And I fell, you know, I fell into the science not by accidents. I won't, I would say by accident, but no, it wasn't. I was very into doing the technology when, you know, the internet first came around and the technology opened doors and I met people. Oh, well, you know, well, you're a teacher. Why don't you come in and teach this program and teach kids how to use the internet and how to use computers. And I'm like, yeah, why not? And I was real tied into Illinois Institute of Technology and their digital media center. So a very good friend of mine, he brought me in to do the computer classes for the elementary kids. And that's kind of where I really was able to parlay my science and my technology and all of that stuff, teaching them how to do web pages. And you know, you never know where those opportunities are going to lead you. How many years have you been teaching now? 30 and a half. Yeah. I don't like, really? Yeah, Graham, you've been teaching 31 years. But I've had a diverse and interesting career. I've been in the classroom and then I got out of the classroom. And this was all at the time where schools were getting E-rates and they were getting wired for the internet. I worked at the first school in Chicago that was connected to the internet. So I always, you know, remember that. And I just like how fascinating. And I remember the media came out and, you know, it's like, this is the first Chicago public school that is connected to the internet. And we would modem into it and we'd have to ping in. And then, you know, screen would come up and it was all black with the little green cursors. And then I look at where we are today and, and it's like, has it really been that long? And how technology has really, really, you know, advanced to the point that, you know, like now it's right here in my hand. I still find this just like amazing computer in my hand. Absolutely. 
Let's talk about the bridge from being a teacher to becoming the NASA lady. How did that opportunity come to you? And that's why I always look back and say I've led such a blessed life. So the friend of mine who I was working with at the Digital Media Center wrote a grant to NASA to do a Saturday Academy for space science for high school kids in Chicago. And he reached out to me and said, I want you to be the computer teacher. So I showed up and it was kind of like, well, we're not planning on hiring anybody else. And he was like, no, you need her. She needs to be here. So I came on to work in the computer lab. So the students would do their, you know, it was an astronomy program and physics. So they would do their experiments. And my job was to be in the lab helping the students. I was the one who made sure that they knew how to point the telescope, take the pictures, and then put them in the software and be able to read the data, which was fun at first. And then I'm like, what are y'all doing over there? So I go over to the lab and I was fascinated. They had, you know, like literally we had students that first year build their own Dobsonian telescopes from scratch. And these kids got these, you know, huge tubes and one wanted to grind his own lens and they learned how to do the optics. And from that program, that's when another friend of mine was like, well, we have an aeronautics education laboratory at Finger High School. It's a NASA lab. And I know you're real technical. So I want you to come over and I want you to be the, you know, the aeronautics education lab manager. And I'm like, I don't know anything about aeronautics. He says, I have to, you know, science and you know, technology and it's a tech lab. So I went and wound up going from thinking I'm going to walk in and be the lab manager to being the default, de facto director of the program. (laughs) I'm like, what? Director, what am I supposed to be doing? And I had a summer to round up, I think it was 150 students, K-8 students, and, you know, immerse them in NASA curriculum and NASA content through the NASA SEMA program. And I hired some teachers and we did it and NASA was happy. And then they refunded us. And for six years, I ran that program. So it's basically one big international STEM ecosystem of learning. It is. So there's always a training on, you know, a new mission or something that is coming down the pipes. There is just so much. And I have been a solar system ambassador now for 11 years. And I feel so privileged to have the opportunity to have all of this NASA goodness in my hands that I can then share, especially with kids. So You know, this summer, I'm planning on doing a mini aerospace academy program at the high school that I work at and really try to get our young people really excited about flight and aerospace because the opportunities and careers for them are going to be like wide open with all of, you know, the new companies that are planning to go to space as well as SpaceX. So I'm really excited about that. So... Pam, I'm still curious. You were an English teacher who was simply interested in technology. But where did you get the knowledge about aerospace and heliophysics 
to actually teach these kids. So what wound up happening was when I got the NASA program, there were a couple of people who didn't feel as an English teacher because they didn't know my background that I was a pre-med major for, you know, a minute. Well, how is she doing this? She's not a science teacher and she can't run a STEM program in the entire district. And she's, she's an English teacher. So that prompted me to go back to school. And I went to DePaul and I got a master's of science education, which then is like, so I'm validated. I now have an MSSE. Anybody have any questions? You know, I was reading recently about Mary Jackson, the mathematician, and the legacy that, you know, she led with NASA. And recently, NASA named a building after her, right? NASA Ames headquarters hit as, mm-hmm. as yeah, in Langley. That's pretty impressive to see, you know, a woman that broke down similarity in education and doing math when probably when she was told not to do math. You know, and, you know those women to realize that those stories were there and, you know, the power of those women. And no one was talking about them. And even though I was running a program, it wasn't like NASA wasn't putting that, especially, and, you know, I learned about the women. They have a website, it's called When the Computer Wore Skirts. And I had read that about the, you know, data processing and how the women were basically crunching all the numbers. But even with that, they had not put up any information about that entire West Wing of of African-American women. So when the movie came out and I watched the movie and I watched Katherine Johnson and she's doing these phenomenal equations on the board trying to figure out the trajectory to see how smart, you know, these women were and they were able to, you know, start working on jet engines that powered the Apollo missions and working on data processing and working on the data to determine, you know, flight trajectories and how these stories have been kept and had never come out, especially to come out to young African-American girls to show them that don't be afraid of math, don't be afraid of science. There's a whole lot of beauty in it. And I think that's where we always miss the mark. We teach it and we teach it the way that it's been taught and the passion's not there. So the students go, I can't stand math. Oh my God, I hate science. But when it's taught right, you get this love for it and you get excited by the teacher in front of you who's presenting it because they're excited. I had a class with a professor, I'll never forget him. His name is Robert Pfefferman. And he was a calculus teacher. I really wasn't that crazy about math. And he was the most inspiring. I, I, I'm still in awe because it was the first time I had seen a professor, teacher, instructor, with such passion about the subject and calculus of all things. And I remember sitting there going, my God, he is really making calculus pretty beautiful. I don't know what he's talking about, rise over run and all that, but this is cool. And when I, you know, do my NASA stuff and my science and my STEM, I get like incredibly excited. (laughs) So I guess the students are like, okay, she really likes this. And 
maybe we should, you know, go over there and get, you know, in the lab and figure out how to build a robot. Or we can figure out, you know, how to do the telescope. So I was really pleased that that the movie came out. And, you know, now NASA has a whole website devoted to the women of NASA. And they are constantly doing things, especially now the Mars helicopter. The lead engineer on the Mars helicopter, Ingenuity, is a, she's from Burma. So she is an Asian female. And as more and more women break the traditional male ceiling in NASA and in STEM, hopefully it is encouraging and other little girls are seeing this and saying, you know, I can do that too. Yeah, I can do math. I can be a mathematician. And it's powerful. I have Barbie dolls. Barbie made a doll of Katherine Johnson. I wish they made all of the hidden figures. And then we learn more about all of the other computers that were African-American. You know, who are these other women? Because they all helped shape our space program in one way or another, whether it was getting men into space or it was just doing the engineering work, you know, the proudness of saying, yeah, I'm African-American and I need to come to school to learn this so I can actually get a job being an engineer. Oh, it's a great movie. I, I've seen that movie so many times. And with my daughter, the first time I saw it, I cried. And then I found places to laugh as well. But it's such an inspiring movie. You know, we talk about diversity in STEM and STEM numbers for women are low anyway, regardless of what nationality, ethnicity it is, numbers for women and minorities in STEM are low. So I'm thinking not only when we talk about NASA, but aeronautics, I'm looking at SpaceX. SpaceX is going to become a major player in the space industry. And then when they retired the shuttle, now we're looking to SpaceX to get our astronauts back into space and to start getting more black and brown young people learning about you know aviation and aeronautics and you know becoming a rocket scientist and they'll never do that if they don't have the access points and the opportunities to be able to learn about it and NASA has all these wonderful internships that students can start doing at the high school level and at the undergrad level. And, you know, they have fellowships. So if you want to get a PhD or a postdoc, they'll pay if you're at minority serving institutions. And so many of the young people that I work with, you know, the last place they even look is to an HBCU. And I try to always make those options and let them know, well, where do you think all those women from Hidden Figures, where do you think they came from? They came from Howard University. They had degrees in mathematics and they didn't go to Harvard and they weren't from Yale and Princeton. So you were little when the U.S. first went to the moon and Russia also went to the moon. Now we're off to Mars. Where where would you want to go? Where would your NASA mission be? Space. That's it. I don't want to go to a planet. I just want to go to space, go up and look out of the window and see the earth below me. That 
is one of the most breathtaking sights. Would you take someone with you? I would definitely take, if they let me, which, you know, a lot of these shuttle astronauts would always take something, you know, like they take their school flag or they take a teddy bear. I would probably take a picture of my mom because my mom would always go, what do you do? People ask me, what do you do? And I can never explain to them (laughs) exactly what you do. And because what I do is so much, I would try to make it so if someone asked her, well, what does your daughter do? She works with kids and technology. And so she never knew how to explain it. So I would take her picture just so that she could come with me because she was my best friend and she was a huge positive inspiration. And I would be taking her spirit with me as I went. And then we could share the moment together. You said that you never were able to explain to your mother what it is you actually do. Mm-hmm. Well, now I could probably tell her much better than I could have told her 15, 20 years ago. My role is to inspire and engage and excite young people, especially girls, about STEM and STEAM and NASA and get them wanting to see that they can do this type of science and technology. They can become engineers. They can do all of these things now because the opportunity is there for them to be able to do it. And I would tell her, then that's what I do in a nutshell, workshops. I do a lot of outreach. I, you know, do the radio show. So I could tell her I'm a radio host. I talk STEM once a week. So it would be a lot more comprehensive than it was then. So when did you realize how much impact you were having on your students? Was there anything particular that stood out as through your entire curriculum and being the NASA lady particularly? When did you realize like, wow, I'm really making a difference. I'm like Mr. Mancini. (laughs) When I took a group of girls, it was 30. They were more, I guess you would say, middle schoolers. I took them to NASA Glen and I didn't take any boys. So the boys got really angry at me because they were like, how come the girls get to come and we can't? And I said, because this is for girls. And the young ladies that were part of that trip and that group and that experience. So one of them, when she got into high school, she joined my first robotics team. And that was when, you know, that you've had an impact when that you you call their teachers and their parents and you're like, hey, I need some girls to go to NASA. Your baby want to come. And parents were like, yeah. And here's the weird thing. So my thing is as a teacher, you know, I call principals and assistant principals that I was working with. And I'm telling them I've got this great opportunity to Take, you know, a group of about 30 something young ladies. And, you know, if you have some at your school that you think would really like the opportunity, I'll give you stuff, share it with their parents. And I would get the weirdest pushback from these administrators. So finally, I just started going to the local school councils and calling the parents that I knew. And once one parent 
learned about it, spread the word, and I got all these girls. And they got to meet some really phenomenal undergrad interns at Glenn that summer. They got to see what STEM programs and science they do. And they got to see how NASA was really diversifying. So that's the highlight. I wish I would have been able to take some of my students to see a space shuttle launch. And we would watch it from, we'd sit in the lab, you know, and I had, you know, I had a little shuttle thing in the model in the lab and we'd watch NASA TV and we'd watch the countdown. And then I said, you know what? They're about to stop the program and you have never been to a shuttle launch. So I wish I had been able to take a group of students to go down to Kennedy and actually see and witness in person a space shuttle launch. But now you can, you know, I guess you can go down and you can watch SpaceX. Like I said, they're always launching rockets. But there was nothing like the shuttle. The shuttle was something truly special. I get a sense that NASA's a huge organization and, and to navigate around. Is there something in that architecture, the infrastructure of, of, of NASA that maybe you wish you knew a little bit more about? So you could have taken your students to a you know liftoff or had more access to academic material or access to knowledge. Is there anything you know now that maybe you didn't know in the beginning? When I got into it, I really, other than, you know, knowing what I knew about, you know, NASA, you know, it's in the space business and they launch astronauts. And we had, you know, men that walked on the moon and, you know, now we're, you know, sending people up in the shuttle and they built this, International Space Station. And that was basically it. So getting into the program and then discovering all the NASA centers and that each center, like, you know, we are very connected to Jet Propulsion Laboratory, JPL, where all the Mars stuff is is happening. So I was fortunate enough to be able to go to then what they called NASA tweet-ups, where, you know, and that's how I got to see the shuttle launch of STS-133. They did this thing on Twitter. So if you follow NASA and like NASA and we pick you, you can come to a shuttle launch and be treated like, you know, a VIP and be where the the countdown clock is and get all this background from astronauts in there, which is where I met Leland Melvin. And, you know, I met Charlie Bolden. And that was like the wow for me because I had all been doing this reading about NASA, but actually getting there and walking through, you know, Kennedy and walking through JPL. And and I watched them build curiosity. And then we went to ASU and they do a lot of Mars work and have Mars student programs from Arizona State University. So it was kind of like, wow, there's so much. And that's what I, I really would like to see them be able to have for young people to really not just say, oh, there's a helicopter that just flew on Mars. They just put another rover mission on Mars. Perseverance is there and curiosity was there and spirit and opportunity. Who's making these? You know, what kind of careers are these? What kind of engineers are building these robotic machines and now this helicopter. And what's the significance of a helicopter flying on Mars? It's huge. So people say, why are you excited about a little helicopter on Mars? Because do you know what this means? We'll have drones up there. 
know, so pretty soon it'll be like that Austin commercial where they're in the moon buggy and, you know, and they're playing Smokey Robinson Cruise with me, baby. They'll be doing that as they're building the habitat on Mars. In some cases, I say it's sort of like it's science overload because it is so much. And that's where you really have to be able to weed out, you know, like, what do you want to follow? I follow, I don't know how many NASA missions and how many NASA field centers. And there's just always so much information and science that each one of the field centers is doing specifically. And a lot, I mean, it's cool stuff. I mean, I keep telling people, Earth is cool. Everybody wants to talk about space, but we really do need to remember that this is a planet and it's so much science and so much engineering that, you know, we can look at doing right here where we live. But everybody, you know, wants to go to space. So space is cool. And I want to go to space too. <laughs> but I'm like, the oceans are wonderful, guys. So Pam, you've had such an amazing career. What do you plan on doing next? Next for me is I am looking at working on bringing the Aeronautics Education Laboratory back, doing more work with aeronautics and aerospace engineering. And, you know, because everyone's doing it, you know, got all these programs out here and they're coding and they're doing STEM, they're doing robotics. And not a lot of people are looking at bringing aeronautics and aviation. If you don't have that, you're not going to get anywhere. So you need to really understand that. And now with all these opportunities that are opening up, actually, you know, starting a company that provide some type of small technologies to put on, you know, some of these new spacecraft that people are developing, you know, and get government contracts. But then that takes me away from my big love, which is, you know, the kids. But it's like, but it's cool. I look at Elon Musk and I'm like, well, at what point and where did he start? And you all have to start. And we do need to increase and diversify even though NASA has done a phenomenal job, when we look at the private sector, there is still such a long way to go when we look at Black and Brown women and men in the industry pursuing these careers and you know being able to open the door and create a pathway for other young people to come in and follow. So I'm hoping that when, you know, I have a legacy, that'll be my legacy. You know, people will remember the NASA lady. I had her when I was in fifth grade and then I went to college and I was still talking to her because they still email. I have a lot of students who email me and ask me, you know, about opportunities. And I am hopefully going to be able to get this done. I'm working on it now. So I will let you know when I launch the first center. So I'm trying to do them in our communities and and do them in a way that they can provide those opportunities for, you know, young people to get firsthand knowledge of learning how to love to fly and love space. That was the NASA lady, Pamela Greer. After 30 years in the classroom, weaving together science and math and language, Pamela says she's finally stopped thinking of herself as just an English teacher, or even a teacher for that matter. Today, Pamela sees herself as a STEM educator, 
with a unique assortment of resources, skills, and talents that she is lucky enough to be able to share with the kids who need them most. Before It Happened is produced by me, Donna Laughlin, along with Studio Pod Media. The executive producer is Katie Sunku Wood, and all episodes are written and developed by Jack Buer. Our show coordinator is Deanna Morency, with additional editing and music provided by Noda Labs.